Put on your hard hat and buckle up that tool belt. It's time for some heavy-duty conversation about all things construction. Welcome to Tommy's Toolbox, the podcast. I'm Tommy Whitehead, the CEO and founder of Tomco Solutions, a full-service building, renovation, and storm restoration contractor based right here in Tampa, Florida. Sitting with me today at the drafting table is Paul Ferreira, fractional chief legal officer and founder and principal attorney at LexWorks Law to discuss the importance of legal support for your small business. Disclaimer, before we dive into this episode with Paul, we need to make some things clear. Anything you hear in this episode today is not legal advice. Every situation is different. If you're considering making any legal moves, you should always consult with an attorney first. Not Facebook, not web articles. Call a qualified, licensed attorney. That way you can protect your business. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me here today. You're very welcome. We really appreciate your time, and we have to hurry up because you're billing me by the hour, right? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. So we gotta. We don't want to waste our retainer here today. <laughs> so, Paul, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? I'm a first-generation American. Okay. My parents were Portuguese immigrants, born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. For those of you that are familiar with it, there's there has been a large Portuguese community up there since the 60s, 70s, 80s, through the 90s, till now. There's still a remnant there. I grew up in that community, first in my family to go to college, majored in accounting, not because I wanted to be an accountant, <laughs> because that was the family business, okay. so to speak. Then I went on to law school, thought I'd never practice uh, accounting again, except uh-huh. just balance my checkbook. I graduated law school and started a normal career as a prosecutor in Newark, New Jersey. But because of my so-called accounting acumen, I started getting cases that had some sort of financial angle to it. And so over the years, I focused on anything financial, many cases involving finance, uh, transitioned into private practice, investigated insurance claims for insurance carriers, eventually became a CPA, and then on to become a certified fraud examiner. And in the background, I was an officer in the United States Army Reserves. So on about September 10th, 2001, I was a young attorney, young family, doing financial investigations in the New York metropolitan area. 9-11 came, and then a couple years after that, my life went on a serendipitous detour. I was activated quite a few times between 2003 and 2018. Did a few tours overseas, worked at the Pentagon a couple of years, and eventually made my way down to Tampa uh, to work at CENCOM and decided to stay and not go back to the New York metropolitan area. So even during that active duty era, uh, there was a new discipline that developed called counter threat finance. So I got to get involved in that a little bit and investigate the, the, the money channels that terrorist organizations use to finance their activities. And, um, wow. So that's a lot to dive in there. So, yes. so, uh, so let's look at this. So first of all, the combat veteran, thank you for your service. Well, thank you for your support. Our, our, our country is nothing without the defense and support that our brave men and women give to us without nearly enough recognition. So thank you. Thank you. So an attorney and accountant. Yes. <laughs> Those two things don't typically go together. No, I, I have a very difficult childhood. It wasn't enough just to be an attorney. Yeah, to, um, they're, they're highly in demand, though, because you, you may have a lot of criminal attorneys, you may have a lot of accountants, but overlapping that path it is really unique. Those are high-demand individuals, I would say. Yeah, yeah, thank you. But I want to make it clear, I became a... CPA to be a better attorney and okay. finance, not necessarily because I wanted to leave the law and practice accounting. So yeah. I use 
my financial knowledge to enhance my legal skills. That's that's incredible. And so, you know, as your role in, you were saying, in, in prosecution and investigation, that must have made a big difference. You get a case that pops up where this looks normal, but they want an account or somebody with an accounting like mind to look at it. But from a fraud perspective, it's some accountants, they're, they're not attorneys, but they are fraud investigators. True. So, but they don't know how to apply the law. They only know discrepancies. You now know how to apply the law to that discrepancy. Yes. And, it, you know, it's not traditional accounting. So, because there's the gotcha aspect mm-hmm. of it, uncovering, trying to figure out what the scheme is, learning about the industry or the business that they're doing. And you sometimes have to, it's an unfamiliar territory. Like I had a case that had pool retailers and suspected of committing insurance fraud. I had to learn the whole pool retailing business to understand what they were doing that was suspicious. So, and that intrigued me. Always learning a different industry, different business, because you never knew what kind of claim would come in and from who the insured was. So you're always learning new stuff. That's, that is, that is really cool. So tell us, we introduced you, you're a fractional CFL. Correct. What is that? Tell us about that. Well, CLO, chief legal officer, is an attorney that is an extension of the executive team for any company. Now, what I mean by that is they are providing ongoing legal advice, both strategic, long-term plans, or tactical day-to-day operations, three months out, six months out. It is unlike a business attorney where the business kind of goes to the attorney when they have an issue or a problem, it's transactional. No, this is an ongoing relationship, extension of the executive team. I'm there hopefully at, you know, leadership meetings, I know what their business plan is, and I'm telling them what they need to do now legally to get to where they want to be five years from now. So it can be done on a full-time basis, or in my case, on a part-time basis. So my ideal clients are small, family-owned, a few members, closely held, just a few members where the business is closely tied to the well-being of their family, their prosperity. And it's not just about the business, it's also about the family making sure that the business is protected and that the family is protected in the event something, for some reason, one of the members, one of the leaders can't work for whatever reason, that there's a plan in place to help protect the family as well. And, and so many of the trades in the United States, so many of us have family members involved in our businesses. Um, you always hear family-owned business, even though they're running 30, 40, 50 people, doesn't mean that if one family member does has a problem, like you said, that there, there's, there's not an issue there. And so... You, it sounds like you focus on prevention. That is part. Risk mitigation is part of it to identify, you know, the activities of the company. What are they doing now? What do they want to do in the future? And how can we minimize any risk that uh, they may be taking on? And your target base, like you said, is is, is smaller to mid-sized businesses. So whereas a a Bush Gardens here in Tampa probably has a bunch of attorneys sitting on staff for them at any given time, a smaller painting company isn't necessarily going to have the ability to put somebody on for six-figure salary to answer the legal questions, nor may they have that need to answer legal questions every day. It may be once a month. It may be once a quarter. Exactly. And it's not just the six-figure salary. It's the support, the paralegal support, the software. Yeah. I mean, now nowadays, everybody, I, my firm, we invest in software designed for being of counsel, tracking things, dates and stuff. So it's it's a whole package of support that the owner of a company doesn't have to pay for, can pay for on a part-time basis. If it's seasonal, maybe they they get very busy in the summer and 
you know, they've got a lot of contracts to review in the summer, and then come Labor Day, things slow down, and they can throttle back, you know, my services. So they have that flexibility. And again, you know, they can call me up. I just got a letter from from an attorney threatening to sue me. What do I do with this? Or it could be, I want to sell the business in five years, or we want to expand. And that that's really good. So you know, earlier in our season we actually had a fractional CFO, chief financial officer on, talking about almost what you said, but from, from a financial perspective. So there's a whole world of fractional professionals emerging. They kind of were called consultants before, but now I feel like they've repackaged themselves and, and put themselves out there. So smaller businesses starting up can get this talent without having to incur a massive cost or like you said, hire the attorney, hire the legal assistance, get the software, get the special insurance for, for servicing those. So what made you decide to get into like this fractional world that seems to be coming? I mean, it seems to be prevalent in the business community right now. Well, like I, I said, my, my military service brought me to Tampa. Mm-hmm. I decided to stay. So I got admitted to the Florida bar. And my first gig here in Tampa was for a nonprofit called Softworks. Right. So LexWorks is an homage to software. So it's a nonprofit that does rapid research and development for the Department of Defense. Okay. And I served as a chief legal, now it's full-time, chief legal officer and a chief financial officer for them. But it was there that I was introduced to the veteran entrepreneur community here. And it's very robust and very active. And that's where I took some entrepreneurial courses and I started seeing a need because uh, I love veterans. They are excellent entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. but they've spent 20 or 30 years in the military, not in the business world. So they come out, you know, they, they know how to build teams, know how to build culture, they get traction, they get contracts and they get work, but they need help on the legal aspect, the financial aspect, because they just haven't worked in this world before. before. So I saw a need for that and continue to um, develop that and that, and that's what I framed my, my firm around and focus on that area. Now you don't have to be a veteran. It's a plus if you are a veteran-owned business doing business with the um, Department of Defense. It's a plus, but not a requirement to be for me to work with you. That that's awesome. So, if if, if a new business owner, so say say a, a plumber comes to you and says, "Hey, we're we're getting bigger. We don't know what we need, but we know we're probably going to need attorneys in this in this great big litigious world just to protect ourselves." What can a new client expect from you and what kind of services do you offer them? So at the initial consultation, you know, schedule and call firm, schedule an initial consultation, I would ask that, that customer, that client, that potential client, bring with them a formal business plan. Hopefully they have one. Okay. If they don't, I'll still meet with them, but I'll ask them basically six questions as why, you know, if they don't have the formal business plan, I'll basically ask them six questions instead. But if they do have a formal business plan, I will look at it and I'll highlight the areas that may involve some legal services or requirements, risk mitigation, and I'll talk to them about that. If they don't have a business plan, I'll encourage them to get one, but I will then start the interview by with six questions, which is why now? Why, what's going on in your business that is making you contact or look for an attorney to work with? Where are you now in your business? And uh, where do you wanna be? What have you done before to get to wherever you want to be? Why are you here and not there? Like if you have a vision of having a company that you can take a month away with emergency only contact, let's talk about why are you not there yet? Uh, And then finally, what's going to happen if you don't do this or get this right? 
will you continue on the same way? Will the company, you know, not do well or, or fail if you don't? So those are the six areas. And based on their answers, you know, I try to keep quiet, have the client do most 80% talking, and I'm listening to what's important to them. Is it money? Is it reputation? Is it being a good parent and taking care of their kids? And then tr- from that, I can develop a legal plan uh, to work with them. And then if they're willing, you know, start working with them. You know, first 90 days is usually ramp up, mm-hmm. trying to get to, to understand their business. And it's a bit of a learning curve. Then after that, we get into a glide path, hopefully. And we set regular meetings okay. on, you know, here's 90 days. Here's the three legal things that we were going to target. How many of them that we accomplish or not, and kind of work with them from there. And hopefully, primarily, they'll get some peace of mind knowing that if something happens to them, their business is taken care of, but also their contracts are reviewed. Uh, a lot of companies are doing it's not just contracts with outside uh, parties, vendors, uh, but it's also contracts with your employees. Right. Um, are there contracts in place? Are they adequate? There's always legal changes, updates, contracts are necessary. Uh, risk mitigation. So I've done, I don't do do it, but I like bring in an agent, an insurance agent that will get familiar with the business. And I don't make any money off of this. I just, my interests are protecting the client. And, and just for clarification, risk or risk analysis is determining where you're most vulnerable at and where you should be insured right. and covered. And I'll give you an example. So I had a client where I started doing CLO services and I didn't see any insurance policies and opportunity, but I called a colleague of mine, arranged a meeting, came in and that agent in the first meeting said, how much do you have this building insured for? Turns out it was about 40% underinsured <laughs> and without going into too much yeah. legalese, there's a thing called a co-insurance penalty where if you underinsure your business by too much, even if the building's worth 5 million, you only have a million dollar loss guess what? You're only going to get 60% of that million. Wow. So it could cost you $400,000 for not having proper insurance in place. So I was able to identify that and bring in an agent to get the, the required insurance so they wouldn't face that challenge. So yeah. So those are some of the things that I do. And again, business succession is, is a big part of it and making sure it's tied in to the personal estate plan. Now, I would think it's exceptionally important when you get a new client that they feel comfortable to tell you everything, that they have to be open with their attorney so that you can help protect them or solve a problem. I know it happens sometimes with clients in the construction industry. I've seen it happen when I was director of finance and accounting where people think they made a mistake and they just don't want to talk about it. Right. But in reality, that's what professionals are there to help for, not judge. But so do you, do you counter that? Do you encourage that they have an open dialogue with their attorney? Let everybody know, let your attorney know what's going on and rely on their professional advice. Uh, yes, we're all entrepreneurs. And any entrepreneur that says they've never made a mistake is a liar. Complete so liar. I've, I've made mistakes <laughs> as an entrepreneur. So um, I would, building trust with the potential client or the client is huge uh, because if they don't trust me, um, I recently ended a relationship with a client because it's six months into it and they wouldn't share their financials. They didn't have a business plan. You know, they wanted a very, very limited scope. Okay. And um, <clears throat> I finally, you know, after trying to get their attention, say there were other risks in the company you need to look at. I mean, the attitude was that I was trying to bill excessively. Mm-hmm. So if there's that mistrust or that cynical look at it, then I will, I will 
fire the client, which is basically what I did. Yeah, because you have to protect your license and your obligations too. And if you, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you know a lot of other things are going wrong, then it could reflect poorly on you later on, even if you told them, hey, you should fix this. If they consistently ignore your legal advice, you know, because you went to law school, that that puts you in a in a situation. So you have to protect yourself, your firm, your family. Yeah, it exposes me. So yeah, because you know if something goes wrong, some other attorney's going to say, "Well, you had a you had a fractional CLO, didn't he talk to you about this?" And client potentially is going to say, "Never, never, never, never heard of that." that. Now yeah. I'm on the hook. My contractor never told me I would need a permit for that. Yeah, yeah I've exactly. heard the story on my side of the aisle too. Apparently, that trans transcends yeah. business practices there. So tell us a little bit more about the, the, the seasonal nature of your work. Because you said sometimes this is gear up period. So I imagine that's like, you know, maybe there's cleanup or, or primary objectives, but then seasonal. Well, depending on the business, you know, for example, I've got clients who do business with uh, the federal government. Okay. Notoriously, when you get to the fiscal year starts October 1st. Mm-hmm. When you get to that August, September timeframe, a lot of government officials are actually trying to get rid of their budget money. Mm. So they've got contracts in place. They're giving the contractors money. There's a lot of, there's a lot of volume going back and forth. Okay. There's a lot of busy. So, you know, you could say, Hey, we are traditionally, we've got contracts in place. We expect addendums and stuff coming through August, September, like they do every month. So I would reserve more of my time, tweak up um, the support to that specific client. Now, October 1st comes around. That season, those two months are over, the client can go back to a more steady routine prior. And that applies to any business. And that, that could be, say, it could be tourist-based, mm-hmm. and they're going to have a lot more activity, so they may need more legal services during. Okay. That's the beauty of it. You just kind of throttle it back once that season has passed. Gotcha. You're in agriculture, like out in Plant City, and, and you're really, really busy in February, but you're completely dead in July. Exactly. Okay. That, that's great. One other thing you kind of touched about was succession planning, and not a lot of people know what that is or think that they need it if they do know what that is. Could you tell us a little bit more about what it is and why it's so important? Well, think about a lot of business owners. The business is them. You know, They're getting mm-hmm. up. They're, they're the entrepreneur, and they don't think about what happens if I can't go to work. And it doesn't have to be death. It could be dis- disability. I'm hurt. Who's going to run the company in, in my stead while I'm out or if I'm out permanently, what's going to happen to the company? So there are plans or written plans that you can do to put in place. It's got some of them are called buy-sell agreements, key man life insurance policies, where you can put those in place so that something happens, there's a plan, there's an influx of money either into the business mm-hmm. to make up for that lost revenue or the dependents, the business are taken care of. So one example, let's say you and I are partners in a company, okay? You're married, I'm married, I've got kids, you've got kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, if there's a business with a cross-purchase agreement, let's say the business is worth, make our numbers easy, $1 million, right? So we- You're go, supposed to do it like this, $1 million. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say the business is worth $1 million, I 50%, we agree that my share is worth 500,000, your share is worth 500,000. Okay. Now, if I die, right, and there's no plan in place, and there's no say, your partner is now my spouse. Gotcha. And that spouse may, she now owns 50% of the business, mm-hmm. and she may or may not know how to run that business. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Now, with- but, but in that 50-50 split, 
they have 50% voting rights possibly. Exactly. And if they don't know how to run that business, they still have the right to say yes or no on this. And now you have to deal with the spouse who's now your partner and buying them out. And they may be reasonable or they may be unreasonable. Mm -hmm. With a cross-purchase agreement, everything's in place. And you take out a half million dollar policy. I take out a half million dollar policy. We are the better each other's beneficiaries. Gotcha. Okay. Something happened. I'm sorry. My, my dependents are the beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. My spouses. Something happens to me. My spouse gets the 500000 right? And you get all of the business. Because gotcha. we already agreed on the value of the business. We already set. They've triggered. If this thing triggers, this is what's going to happen. And now you can go forward mm-hmm. and make your decisions and run your business. Without a plan in place, you know, you have to deal with the spouse. If I have a mistake plan, I may have to go into probate. So now you have to wait till a probate court decides who gets the other half before you can even start talking about Then third-party receiverships can get involved. You have people you've never even heard of just step in. It gets complex. It can get very complex. And, you know, the surviving owner is now, like, stuck in limbo for a year or so waiting for all of this to get wrapped up before they can even start talking about, you know, let me, you know, let me buy the share out of you. And their partner's not there to help generate revenue. And for the trades, this gets a lot more serious. Um, they have all those problems, yes. But there was an instance here in Tampa of a plumbing company. Unexpectedly, the license holder and owner of the company passed away. It was a tragedy for the company. It was a sizable company. They had no way to pull new permits. They had a full mechanism exactly. to qualify business, to service the business, to call existing inspections. They had everything in place to run a business so he could step out, except for his actual death, which then terminates a license, terminated a death. And there's no legal document that can take that license past his death. Exactly. And they hadn't considered that in a secession plan. So they literally, I had called them one day and they're like, well, we can't do your work. And I'm like, well, why not? Did I piss you off? Did Did I not pay my bill? No, 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 no. You didn't do anything. Like, well, what's going on? And keep pressing. And they're like, well, our owner died and we can't legally pull permits right now. We're fixing it. But that's not just affecting you. That's now affecting an organization worth of people that may not be able to collect a paycheck because we didn't plan. I have some plans in place. Definitely going to have to reach out to you to talk about some secession plannings. But I have other license holders that work with me. So if something were to happen to me, I have plans in place that somebody else could pick up the pace, pick up the pick up the license holder requirements so that my husband still could take time to dispose of the business. He's not a contractor. He doesn't want to own a construction business. But at least in the meantime, his value asset doesn't decrease. The, the evaluation of the company doesn't stop because there's not somebody in place to pull a permit. Let me, let me give you a metric by using mm-hmm. a real-life example. My okay. client come to me um, a few years ago with their father was a smart businessman here in Tampa, had multiple businesses spread out all over the, all over Tampa. They were all generating money, doing well. Very smart businessman. He had no succession plans for any of them, and he had no estate plan for himself. Okay. So to do his estate plan, I kind of guesstimated by looking at the size of it, probably would have cost him eight to $10,000. Right. Like a big ticket. Right. To probate that all of those businesses, to get them transferred over to his survivors, a minimum of eighty thousand dollars. Wow! And you have ten to wait times at least as much. ten times as much, and you have to, and you have to wait a year, and you're and a judge is making the decision on who takes over your business, not you. And 
that is something I struggle with sometimes because clients don't always see my ROI mm-hmm. until something bad happens. Or, or they don't well, The client might be gone by the time something bad happens. <laughs> exactly. It's their family that, that suffers the consequences for them not seeing right. the value in your service. Saying, we say, you know, make sure that when you go to heaven, your family doesn't go to hell or go through hell and trying to clean up your affairs because you didn't, you left behind a mess. Wow, that's incredible. So Paul, we've talked a lot about what you do, but what, what drives you? Like what's the favorite part of your day or what's a win at the end of a day? Like, wow, this is a great day. I really get a kick out of just helping people protect what they've built or, or protecting what they are building. You know, I like helping them, talking to them about areas of the business that they don't know about. So knowing that, you know, they got spouse and kids and stuff, that those kids are also protected and there's a plan in place. When it comes to veterans, you know, a lot of veterans, when they transition from the military to civilian life, they kind of go through um, a hard time finding jobs that give them that sense of purpose. There's not a many civilian jobs that give them a sense of purpose. They have military. And I found that entrepreneurship is like a modality of therapy. They get to build their team. They get to pick out the uniform, you know, the logos. What are we going to look like? What's the culture? What's the value? They get gets them up in the morning. Feels great. If they have targets, can we make five hundred thousand this year? Can we make a million next year? They've got those incentives and stuff. So that that really helps them. With it, it helped me with my my transitioning, having my own business, getting up in the morning, knowing people depend on you, my employees, independent contractors. So that that is really what, what drives me. I like helping people protect their assets. And, and I don't know if you ever had this feeling like you wake up some days, it just feels like you're walking down the street full of pickpockets and people are trying, Everybody either taking your money or something. Try, yeah. take something and, you know, try to help protect them from those those types of people or those days and say, hey, we got something in place that's going to protect you so you don't have to, you can have some peace of mind and not worry about it. That's incredible. And that, that feeling for you is, is, is just giving back to the organization you serve for so long, giving back to the people that serve that organization. Right. And, and that's incredible that you spent your time because so many of our service members come out of the service and they're saying, told, thanks, bye, and that's it. There's hard, yeah. hardly anything to, what do you do with your life? You know, you're, you're, you're 40, 50 years old maybe. You're not dead. You've got years of... You're in the prime of your life, and it's like starting over again. And you're in a perfect position to be a entrepreneur because you probably have a pension, mm-hmm. probably have health care benefits, either cheaper or or paid for. You're not a rich person, but you're comfortable enough. You got enough to turn on the lights, mm-hmm. put food in a refrigerator, while you're building something. Those mm-hmm. three or five. Eight. A lot of entrepreneurs don't have that. They got to bootstrap it, and they've got no income until the business generates. Here, you've got an opportunity to dedicate yourself full time to a business while you're still at least getting something in. Again, it's not going to make you a rich person, but it's enough to pay the bills until your company gets on its feet. It's a safety factor that sometimes, well, like you said, most entrepreneurs don't have that safety factor. So it's a deterrent to new people creating new businesses. They may have a great plan. They may be able to execute, but something psychologically holds them back because that risk of not being able to pay the power bill. So these veterans have a limited time or an opportunity where they may be able to be comfortable enough safe enough so they can do that. That's, that's incredible. So Paul, I want to move on to a little segment um, on our podcast called tools for success. And a question for you I have here is what are, what are some of the things you normally find in small businesses when you're first analyzing their company? You, 
just walked in the door, maybe they had a problem and, and, and came to you, or maybe they didn't know they needed a problem. They just heard this podcast and they said, wow, maybe we should have somebody look at us. What are you normally seeing? Too often they're coming to me because they do have a legal issue. And you know, when I ask them why now, well, because I have this legal problem. And when I analyze it is perhaps they didn't have an attorney review the deal or whatever was it's going on, or they failed or they waited too long to engage the services of an attorney. A lot of entrepreneurs start their business. <clears throat> they think they can't afford an attorney, just like they think they can't hire somebody when they really can't afford not to hire somebody. They do it yourself a lot. So to give you an example, I have a, had a case where a three-member uh, LLC came to me. One of them, the surviving owner, found out that there were three members. They never had an operating agreement drafted. It was all done, do it yourself. And one of the members was now claiming 40% ownership of the business. It's roughly a $3 million business, let's say. It's worth about $3 million. So he's claiming about $1.2 million in damages or the rightful ownership of one. There's nothing in writing. The owner thought that he had excluded that member prior, but yeah. the documents that were filed with the state, again, do it yourself, were not done properly, ambiguous. So now, what would it have cost to do a proper operating agreement? It would have been a flat fee of $2,500, mm -hmm. file the proper paperwork, update it, maybe another $1,500 whenever that member was out. So you're looking at about 4000 versus $20,000 in litigation fees and going, and potentially $1.2 If If the uh, member succeeds, and you may have a payout of 1.2, all because the smaller amount, the $4,000 early on in the case. So those are examples. I would put that down in failure to have proper agreements in place. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it's not just contracts with vendors. It's the internal agreements. Are they signed? Uh, are they completed? And does everybody have a good? By the way, I always put in, uh, in my operating agreements, a requirement to go to mediation, which could possibly save you tons of mm -hmm. Tons of money in litigation if it settles at mediation. It's kind of like car insurance. You really don't want it, but you pay for it up front, and it could save your butt later on right. substantially. Maybe not perfectly, but it could reduce Correct. The problems. And, that, again, you don't see that ROI until yeah. something bad that happens. happens. Thank God I paid for the extra insurance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Paul, what's a huge misconception you find small business owners have all the time? Well, that they don't know what kind of uh, organization to create early on. And then a lot of times I'll get, well, why should I pay you to do it when I, all I have to do is pay $150 and file with SunBiz. Mm -hmm. And that's true. That's all you have to do. And I thought when the do-it-yourself forms were coming out and the bill, that the law industry was going to um, go down the drain, but the cleanup of mistakes made by people who don't know what they're doing because they're not attorneys. Mm -hmm. I would say if Plumber said, I don't know how to fix my toilet. Uh -huh. why, do you, why do you think you can practice law? Is, is, always <laughs> my, is always my response. But giving advice on what type of business organization you should create is legal advice. I know there are a lot of supporters, like business service supporters out there that help people create it, but in its purest form, it is legal advice. So understanding the client situation, what do they want to do with the company? Do they want to eventually sell publicly? Then you want a corporation. Mm -hmm. Do they want to keep it small members? And then an LLC may, may be in place. There are so many different forms of organizations that you can create, partnerships, limited liability companies, corporations that 
you know, really need a competent attorney to listen to the client, understand what they're trying to say, and that this is the type of business you want to do. And then it's not just filing. Corporation needs bylaws. Mm-hmm. An LLC may may need a proper operating agreement. That doesn't get filed. Mm-hmm. That has to be drafted. Again, a lot of people do it themselves. They'll go on Zoom, download, but they make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And then those mistakes can be very costly if something happens and there's a dispute within the parties. Okay. And I constantly read this, constantly see this. My friend says I should incorporate. Should I get an S corp or an LLC and which is better for taxes? Right. So that's, those are two different things completely, but they're misconceived. Can you explain those just a little bit to us? So an S corporation is not a business entity. It is a tax status that the IRS gives certain companies if they meet certain criteria where you can have a payroll, you know, and pay yourself a salary, but still get, enjoy some tax benefits of a small business, okay? Or avoid some tax penalties of of, uh, single owner uh, businesses. So it's just tax status, but I have the same question. What kind of corporation you have? I have an S corp. An LLC can have S corp status. Okay. A corporation can have S corp status. That doesn't make the LLC a corporation, it's just a a tax status. Mm -hmm. You apply to the IRS for it, Normally, if somebody competent is doing that, they're not going to submit the application unless they think you qualify. It gets approved and you get certain tax advantages out of that. So that's basically the difference. And those are two different things. So so an incorporation or an LLC or a formation of your business happens at the state level, correct? Correct. Okay. The taxes, federal taxes anyway, happen at the federal level. And those two things are mutually exclusive. Now they integrate, they, they make part of your business operate, they connect, but they're two different agencies with two different priorities. Is that correct? Yeah. The, the, uh, so you apply for your entity identification number from the IRS. Mm-hmm. That becomes like the social security number for your business and that's used on the state documents uh, as well. So yeah, the, uh, and in Florida, you know, you, there may be taxation by the federal government or there is not uh, taxation from the state government, depending mm-hmm. on, on your uh, status in your position, how many people are in your company, et cetera. It's not uh, a black and white answer. Each situation is different. It's different because you can be taxed on a state level here if you're not properly registered incorporated. Exactly. It's, it's potential. But most of these small businesses, it's it's a simple legal process for, for an attorney or an accountant in this case to file the proper paperwork so you're not accidentally taxed by the state. But I know the state will come after you way quicker than the IRS will if they feel like you owe them money. Yeah. So, so these things are are key. And you, I'm sure, work with a network of accountants or advise at some point. That, I mean, you're a little different. You have a background that you, that you are. You can double dip a little bit there. But I mean, I'm sure there's points where you say, hey, you really need an independent accounting advice. All, all the time. Because I don't do financials. I understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, I can speak that language. And I can identify a legal issue that may affect your finances and may need the input of a tax CPA or something. Let's, you know, let's talk to our tax CPA about if we do this, how is it going to impact our taxes? Because that may influence our decision. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. You need an attorney and an accountant to form a business to get the best advice to make sure you're going forward. Because who here in this room? wants to pay the government more money than they're absolutely owed or deserved. If I can give you an example that happened two weeks ago, I had a colleague call me up. She had been hanging out at, I guess, her country club. She decided to make 
starting not for profit with her friends to advance some yeah. some social program that she wanted. And she called me and said, I'm sitting at the, my desk. I'm creating an LLC. And I'm just about to hit submit uh-huh. to the state. And I said, don't do it. Mm-hmm. First, you can't convert an LLC into a nonprofit. Uh-huh. It has to be a corporation because I didn't know that. And you need a minimum of three members mm-hmm. to be a, a nonprofit. And even when you file that, is there a plan? Like, how are you going to generate donate revenue from donations yeah. to pay for this? Because now you're going to have an obligation to file uh, a tax return. Even though nonprofits don't pay, they, they file informational mm-hmm. tax returns. And you have to apply for the IRS. Is a nonprofit status isn't directly. The IRS will look at the, so you have to have bylaws written up. Because that's what the IRS looks at to see if it meets the criteria for nonprofit. You have to have admissions. All of this stuff. And those are very particular criteria. The IRS literally has guidance documents to say, you have to address these items or we will not grant this for you. Exactly. In that six-minute phone call, I saved her maybe about $3,000 and a headache (laughs) because don't do that until you've got a plan for these other things. And she's like, thank you. Because I would have made that mistake. And then undoing that would have been it's a, it's a mess. Once a you incorporate, you, you have to go through certain procedures to close it down, even if it was an error, right? Right. They won't let you close it down unless you show them you've paid all your taxes. <laughs> so you've got your <laughs> Then you have to file taxes, and even though you didn't have revenue, but a CPA has to put their name to it. And now there you go, thousands of dollars for something they just wanted to do, something good. Right. They, they had all the intention. They weren't trying to make money. But they, they were like, we don't need an attorney to do this. All we have to do is file, and we'll get to go. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Well, I'm glad that your friend, I'm sure, is glad that she decided to have a quick call with you. Paul, what are some issues you see occur within family businesses specifically? We talked about the partnerships where, where somebody might be your partner and then maybe they pass or, or, and then you have to deal with a spouse. But what about those like mom and pop, husband and husband, husband and wife type visits or businesses out there? What kind of oh, things do you see there? It's absolutely the dynamic. So let me... So I'm a Jersey boy, so I got to let me use the Sopranos <laughs> as an example, right? You got Tony Soprano. He's in. He's lead. He's got a contentious relationship with his wife. He's got a daughter who seems to embrace the family business, and a son who rejects it. So if you look at, and he's got non-related employees that work for him that are not related to him. So if you think of that as a family business, use that as an example. Like, what's going to happen to the business, right? Son doesn't want it doesn't want anything to do with it. Daughter's very interested in it. But if you give everything to the daughter, how's the son going to be like kind of compensated mm-hmm. for not getting, he's a kid too. How's he going to, in the estate, how's he going to be um, doing it? What if Tony and um, uh, his wife divorce? She's got a claim to a certain part of the uh, uh, of the, the company. Uh, he owns, let's assume, 100%. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens if they get divorced and now she wants 50% of that business? Is there a plan in place to assess what the business is worth and how to satisfy that that claim? He's got key men who work for him. Mm-hmm. You know, what if something happens to that key man and all of a sudden his revenues drop significantly? Until revenues, you, you know, like <laughs> revenues drop significantly because he doesn't have his enforcers <laughs> around to go and collect as before, and so he's going to take some time. And it's not just somebody you pick up off the streets or you add on indeed it's going to take some time search identify somebody you trust and take them over it's going to cost money and your revenues are going to drop yet is there a key man life insurance policy in place so some family owners like tony may say i don't want my kids to have anything to do with this industry 
this is just for me to make money so they can get educated and go off and do something else. There's that dynamic, and then there's a dynamic as, no, I'd love to pass this on to my children. Mm -hmm. Love to one of them or all of them take control over it. But, you know, we all have somebody in our family that is may do very well in business and somebody who may not. We still love them. Yeah. They're great people, but you're like, uh, I can't. You know, yeah. and, and you don't want them to waste everything you've done when maybe selling the business is the best financial option for them. Right. Versus or, them running into the ground. Or passing it over to one child, but having a plan to say, hey, she's going to get it, but this is how we're going to compensate you for not getting half of the business. So, you know, when the time comes, this is how you're going to be compensated for. So those, those are the plans. Those are the dynamics. Um, you have to work inside the family and understand them. So that's part of the fractional CLO. It's not just about the business. It's also family, what's going on, you know. Does the owner want to be able to pay for medical school in six, seven years? Mm -hmm. Now, when the kid gets that age, if they're ex accepted, what's the plan to do that? Um, let's start planning for it now rather than after the kid gets the admission acceptance letter and like, okay, how are we going to pay for this? So th that goes back to tell your attorney everything. Exactly. Let them know about the family squabbles. Let them know about this stuff because it potentially could generate issues later and you could at least give them different angles or different thoughts. Hey, do you ever see this being a problem? Maybe we should think about this way to solve that before it becomes a problem. And you said like attorneys don't want to know about emotions before. This is one case where they actually do want to know about Okay. Things. What's the dynamic? What's going on? Like, uh -huh. Do you get along? You know, my partner's my brother. I hate him. Okay. My partner's my brother. We're, 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 we're tight. So I do want to know about okay. those emotions because that's going to feed into the dynamic and come up with a plan for the future. And in many cases, when you are a CLO, for um, a family-owned business, you're also like the mediator. Like, okay, you need to, let me explain the consequences of your uh, action and let me explain the consequences of yours and maybe we can come to some agreement and if that can't be done, then you may both need to go get your own attorney to represent because I'm conflicted out. So, Got it. What kind of tips can you share about networking that have helped you grow your business or gain new clients here in Tampa? Network, network. Network, go into every network meeting with an attitude about how many, not about how much business can I get here, but how can I help others? You know, learn what the others are looking for as far as ideal clients and see if you have anything that can help them. It will eventually, karma does come around and it'll eventually repay yourself if you're looked at as a giver, not a taker. Don't be that guy that shows up in a networking event, hands out cards and shakes hands and figures out in 30 seconds whether you're a potential client or not and then walks away. Mm -hmm. Engage. Keep having collisions. And what collisions are meeting people because eventually, you know, you make your own luck. Luck doesn't happen. You're going to collide with somebody that's like, oh my God, I've been looking for somebody like you or I'm new to the area, need somebody like you. And that's going to happen. A great referral partner, a great partnership that can lead to additional business or growing business. So keep it up. Um, try to find networking groups, you know, give it, give it some time. But if you're not getting that, keep track of how many leads you're getting from or referrals you're getting from a networking group, kind of figure out an ROI and you're spending hours, you know, tens of hours and not getting any business. You might want to move on to a different group or, or use that energy somewhere else. Or evaluate your approach. Yes. That's the other thing I found common in networking is, is you put in the time, you do it a lot and you don't get anything, but you want to blame the program instead of reflecting on yourself and saying, 
have I really focused what people have been saying to me? Have I really given? Have I really done this? Have I articulated what I do and what kind of client I'm looking for? That's very important. Yes. And there are, there are you can YouTube it. If, if, if you're really low budget, you can YouTube how to network, how to do an introduction and watch it, you know, yep. and, and, and then mimic some of the practices that they teach there. Yeah, in, in networking, I always like to say what a good referral for me is. I like to specify it. And some people think that's rude, but it's not. We're all, we're in a networking event. Everybody there is for the same mutual purpose, to make connections to grow their business. Whether that's financial connections on a sale or a subcontractor or referrals to somebody outside of that group. It's always to make that connection. But people are like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a contractor. Oh, I want to introduce you to somebody at Tampa General Hospital. That's a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. But I don't do commercial work on hospitals. It's a very specialized trade. It's not a good referral to me. I'm sure you all the time get a, I know an attorney, and it's somebody calling you about a child custody case, which you don't touch, right? Guardianships. Guardianships. It's like, hey, let me get you to the right attorney. That's not me. But if you don't specify and say, I am really looking for custom home builds here in Tampa Bay, that is a good request. So now you're thinking the next time somebody wants to build a house, Oh, well, Tommy with Tomco, he's a contractor. He just talked about wanting to find clients that need custom homes in Tampa Bay. That's a good friend. And I'm sure you have the exact same thing. You come in, I'm looking for small businesses looking to grow that need legal protection. Exactly. And another thing, another thing the fractional CLO does is identifies the issue. So let's say you have trademarked your mm-hmm. copywritten all your logos and stuff. Somebody's using it. That may be something that the... CLO will say, we need a specialist on this. I'm a generalist, you know, let, let me get somebody very specific. And they have the connection. I have the connections. I have the firms that I would prefer that. And I would act as a liaison for the owner, take that off of the owner's plate and say, here's what happened. Here's what's happening with protecting our intellectual property. Don't have to worry about it. It's in good hands. It's being taken care of. And sigh, sigh of relief, hopefully. And I bet in some circumstances, because of your other legal connections, you save them a little time and money maybe because you're not recapping all the garbage that maybe the other attorney doesn't need to know. Exactly. You are only sticking to the facts of what they need to know instead of, I feel like they're getting, you know, attorneys don't need to know about the feelings. They need to know about the facts. That's the only thing that's judged. So I imagine that there's so many more ways that you have a return on investment again, but it's difficult to manifest or see until. I I have clients who will drop $150,000 easy I'm thinking twice on a piece of equipment, uh-huh. but we'll be like, well, are you going to bill me for the next meeting? I'm like, yes, I'm a legitimate <laughs> business and I'm going to give you some, but you know, and it's, it's hundreds of dollars versus thousands of dollars, yeah. but they don't walk away with something they can feel. Yeah. They can drive or they can, you know, pimp out or whatever. So they, they have a hard time uh, dealing with that or seeing the value to them. Well, maybe you should be like $250 an hour, but here's a squeegee ball you get every time you come in. <laughs> Let them walk away with something. If it was only that easy. And I have a great connection for for some promo items if you need it. Just let let me know. (laughs) So this is a fun segment. It's called Stud Finders. I love this one. The reason why I like Stud Finders so much is it always gets me thinking about what if and what is going on in the industry and, and, and who do we look up to. So I'd like to know or I'd like you to give me a name of somebody that you see as being kind of really on top of their game and why? Um, you know, it's somebody who's not a client, right? But I'm like observing them from afar. I'm watching their activities. And I'd have to say that when I read that question before coming here, 
I'd say Daryl Shaw and okay. uh, Gasworks. Again, he, I'm going to make this clear. He's not a client, mm-hmm. but and I'm, I don't know what's going on inside his his organization, but from the outside looking in, I just like, you know, he's doing, he's restoring Ebor, mm-hmm. but he's doing it with keeping it in line. Whatever he's building is in line with the historical architecture there. Mm-hmm. He's preserving some of the old and mixing it with the new. He's got a plan to make it a very livable area, and I, that excites me. That's great. Yeah, Daryl Shaw has come up a lot in the construction industry and real estate industry here for things that he's doing in the Tampa Bay area. He's going to start getting up there with the with the likes of Jeff Finnick, who's made a massive change in the footprint of Tampa just in the last 10 years. So that's cool. It's kind of a little local celebrity, but, but a fascination based on what he's doing for the community. And if you can make the introduction, I would love to meet him. Okay, we'll put that on our notes. Can we get the crew just make a note on that, and we'll just we'll just send it on over. <laughs> if you're listening to this, Daryl, just give give the show a call. We'll we'll uh, hook you up. All right, man. <laughs> Some of your previous in our previous conversations, like even before we kind of started recording, you mentioned that when you do go to court, when you do the hearings, it's not necessarily going to court anymore. It sounds like that you're actually doing this virtually. Did I pick up on that correctly, that you're doing Zoom as a yeah. method to communicate with um, the court now? I have clients that I have not met in person from the beginning of a case to the end of the case. I've wow. literally, from initial consultation to the end of the case, has been Zoom. Some from their living rooms, some from their offices, some from their car. And COVID, you know, notoriously the legal profession mm-hmm. is very resistant to change. But COVID forced it to accelerate. Courts had to come up with ways to have video conferencing, and and they've kept that as a legacy. So many of the hearings that would traditionally require you to get in the car, drive over to the courthouse, spend time, wait till your case is called, answer, and then drive back, Mm -hmm. all that could could be billable to the client if it's a billable hour. Now it's 10 minutes before the hearing. You pop on. You make sure you're dressed well. You wait your turn. You answer the hearing by, via Zoom, you make your appearance, and you're done. That also helps you know, the client in the sense that it's a lot more efficient mm-hmm. than it used to be. So, yeah, cases from beginning to end without ever meeting the client, all virtually. Wow. So you could have a, a hearing at 11 o'clock in Tampa and have a 12 o'clock hearing in Sarasota, and you don't have to move from your desk, nope. and you can handle both. That is a lot more efficient. Exactly. Depositions can be done. That. Uh, signings, contract signings can now be done electronically. Wow. A lot of stuff that required in person. I mean, I have an office meeting space, maybe one or two in-person meetings a quarter. Wow. Uh, everything else is done by Zoom now. That's that's incredible. So the construction site is, is kind of a foresight of the industry. Can you tell me a particular challenge you faced owning your own business and, and how did you overcome it? I think one of the biggest challenges I faced was, I call them enablers. These are people who help you, support you, right? Not an enabler as in the, you've got an addiction to yeah. that thing, but an enabler that make, helps you succeed. And that would be hiring enablers that did not have legal industry specific experience. So I would advise everybody, we've used the term of a plumber. If you're a plumbing company, look at you know, website managements that have built the plumbing. Like if you if there's a, a plumber's website that you like a lot, mm-hmm. check out who built it for them. Okay. And maybe contact them because you have experience and maybe they know a little bit. And there are some principles that apply to every industry, but there are some specific nuances in every industry that you want to hire somebody 
who's worked. If you're looking for a CFO, you know, look for somebody who, if you're, again, a plumbing company, look for somebody who has other plumbing companies as their book of business, in their book of business, mm-hmm. and is doing it for other plumbing. Don't, same thing goes with employees. If you need a COO, don't just promote, you know, your buddy from supervisor position mm-hmm. into COO um, because you like them and you think you'd be good at it. No, look for somebody who has been an actual COO for another plumbing company, has experience on their belt. Somebody is going to come to you and say, hey, you're still doing things this way. You know, we don't do it in, like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Not you telling them what they want to do, but it's like there's, there's new software, there's new apps, there's new techniques, there's new tools and equipment. We can do this differently and more efficient. And that's the kind of person you want on your team. That's, that's great advice. Okay, we're almost done with this podcast. We've been recording almost an hour. This is the funny part. This is where we relax. We have a little segment here called Ratchet It Up. And so can you tell me some crazy mistake you've heard of in the industry or maybe even just a funny construction joke? Clean, of course. A funny construction joke? I don't. I can tell you a funny lawyer joke. Okay, we'll take the funny lawyer joke. All right, funny lawyer joke. So what's the difference between a dead skunk lying in the middle of the road and the dead lawyer lying in the middle of the road? What's that? Skid marks in front of the skunk. (laughs) That's great. Thanks, Paul, for a job well done. As we wrap up here, keep in mind, if you think a fractional CLO might be the right call for you, or if you have had other business law questions, call Paul at Lexwork Law, 813-519-4339 to schedule an initial consultation. If you mention Tommy's Toolbox, Paul will waive his initial consultation fee. Well, thank you, Paul. That's a great offer. Thank you so much for joining us for Tommy's Toolbox, the podcast. If you have any questions about my company, Tomco Solutions, the construction industry, or real estate investing, please be in touch or visit TomcoSolutions.com. My contact information is in the episode description, and I'll put Paul's there as well. We both love to hear from you. Till next time, thank you again. I'll look forward to seeing you at the construction site for the next episode of Tommy's Toolbox, the podcast. Have a great day, everyone.